Welcome to the Haber Show. This week we have Stan Van Gundy, TNT analyst and former head coach of the Heat, Magic, and Pistons, and newest member of NBA Twitter. You can follow him at RealStanVG. Stan stops by to talk about the Heat Celtics series, what went wrong with the Clippers. We'll give a little preview of the Lakers Nuggets. We'll also go behind the scenes on his TNT work, living in the bubble, and his coaching rivalry with his brother, Jeff. And we'll also get into Stan's social justice commentary on Twitter and whether he'll ever get into politics himself. Now, before we get into all that, I have to mention... The U.S. Open returns to NBC as the world's best golfers take on golf's greatest challenge. Watch Tiger Woods, Dustin Johnson, and Webb Simpson, the GOAT golfer from Wake Forest, who won the 2012 U.S. Open, also took an acting class with yours truly. It's true. At Wake, we my second semester senior year, I decided to take acting, and he was in my class. We took statistics our freshman year together. And senior year, um, acting class with Webb Simpson, we acted out, the two of us, uh, like a, a 20 minutes, a scene from True West, where we're both these like drunken brothers, uh, and we like studied all semester trying to act out this play and memorize our lines. Gotta tell you, Webb's good at acting. Really good on the golf course, also would be good on the stage. Um, now, he's gonna be taking on Tiger and Dustin Johnson, all the top names are going to be live from historic Wingfoot Golf Club. I've never played Wingfoot, but I have played Pioneers number two where the U.S. Open was in 2014. And let me tell you, uh, U.S. Open is a different sport altogether, no matter where it is. Uh, coverage begins Thursday on the Golf Channel, NBC, and Peacock. And as you'll learn later, Stan Van Gundy, not a golfer. Not a golfer. His brother plays golf, I believe. He does not. Which means I think it discredits him as an NBA coach because I'm pretty sure every NBA coach plays golf. Anyway, Stan does know hoops better than anybody, so without further ado, let's talk to Stan Van Gundy. Stan Van Gundy coming off uh, his stint as, in my book, the best color analyst of the playoffs. What'd you think? This, this, this stretch of playoff games, uh, going into the bubble to call the games, how was it? How was this experience for you? Well, the games were fantastic, and the opportunity for me to broadcast so many games in a short amount of time, I thought, was uh, valuable. I'm a rookie at this, and, you know, to be able to do a game, get feedback, and come out back and do a game again the next day or two days later, it's just a lot easier, I think, to try to improve some things than, uh, you know, if you do a game and you wait a week before you do another game, so... Um, I was fortunate to have the experience. Tired of the bubble after seven weeks, though, and and um, pretty happy to uh, to be out of there and back home. So wait, you live how far away from the courts? About forty minutes. Forty minutes. So you could have done that, but you had to you had to quarantine in the bubble. Yeah, uh, I got home between the seeding games and the first round for a few days. Turner worked it out so that I could get home, but. Um, yeah, for the most part. Now, we had to stay down there. So it was, uh, yeah, it got a little long and a little boring. Um, I don't golf, and that's really the only thing to do at the hotel where the media is. I mean, there's really nothing else. So 
walk every morning and then sit in your room. That, that was pretty much the day until you did your games. And did you hang out with your brother? Yeah, we walked every morning. We had lunch a couple times, uh, you know, but just the way it works between ESPN and Turner, you know, days he worked, I didn't work. And the days I worked, he didn't work. And so between production meetings and getting ready to go to games and stuff, it's not like we had a lot of times. I, I don't think, um, I don't think there was a day where, neither one of us worked. Um, there were a couple where we both worked some split days on weekends, but, um, yeah, for the most part, uh, one working and one not. So in some ways I kind of feel like you would love this is just, you're there and you're just there to work basketball games. Like there's no family involved. You can just focus on basketball as, as a grinder and as a, a lifelong coach and, you know, a son to a coach, you kind of feel like, you were made for this, right? Yeah, no, I, I needed to see my family. No, yeah. <laughs> Look, the games, are, the games are great, and the basketball was tremendous down there, and I love I loved that part of it. And, and um, you know, could have gone on forever uh, from my point of view if I was working, you know, out of here and driving down every day. But, man, yeah, it, it, get, it got old and, and a little too consuming, I think, you know. Um, if I want to be uh, that consumed by the game, then I, I think, you know, I'd be coaching. Like, that, that's what coaching is, and that's fine. That's part of the job. But broadcasting, just too much downtime, you know. I mean, you know, you do your preparation and everything, and you, you just still, especially on your off days, like, what do you do? I mean, it was just, it was just boring beyond belief. But, again – the basketball was outstanding. The broadcast experience was outstanding. And these are unprecedented times. And hopefully the NBA will never be, have to go through this again. Did you ask, I know as, as someone who has two brothers myself, did you kind of work with your brother on notes about broadcasting and do's and don'ts and do like a scouting report on yourself? Like, did you work with him at all at that? Well, I did. I got advice from him and, uh, you know, not just before I started, but, you know, um, I would ask him advice, you know, after games, things like that, because he's watching them and things like that. So, yeah, for sure. Look, I tried to uh, seek out feedback from a lot of people, you know, the, the guys I worked with, the play-by-play -play guys, Ian Eagle, who I worked with, during the season before it got shut down um, was especially helpful and willing to give me a lot of constructive criticism, which was great. Um, Scooter Vertino, you know, at Turner Sports uh, would send me notes after virtually every game, very specific notes. I would get feedback from Tara August at Turner. I mean, there were a lot of people willing to help you if, um, you know, if they know you're, I guess, coachable, willing to be coached. I, I had some directors and producers that, you know, were really, really helpful to me uh, there in trying to get better. So um, I still, in this profession, have a long, long, long way to go. But like I said, to be able to get the feedback and then be right back at it. Um, during the year, you know, I would get great feedback from, 
iron and from scooter, but then you had to wait till the next week to do a game. And so right. even though you had it all written down and stuff, it was just a little harder than it was here where you were just constantly doing games. I, um, for the first time in my career, I started calling games as the analyst for like a quarter and like at NBC, like if I'm at a Warriors game, they'll have me up. Um, and I'll do the game, uh, with Kalena and, and Fitz. And it's like, it's a different sport, man. When you're writing a game or tweeting about a game, but calling a game, there's such a different pace to it. Like I could be in a good thought and then a crazy play just happened and I have to change, I have to stop or I have to go through it. Like that stuff, I was totally out of my element and I didn't know when to stop talking if like I was in the middle of something good. And I was like, man, for Stan to come into this, not cold, you'd done games before, but in the postseason, it felt like you've been doing this for, for years and years and years. And I just, I, I got to say, it was really, really cool to watch. But I had some of the same problems and, and people would have to correct me. I mean, I am um, very wordy just by nature. I talk a lot. You can tell on this podcast, right? You ask me a question and you get a 10 minute answer. And um, so I needed, I need to learn still to be more concise with my thoughts and my timing. Um, I think got better, but you know, there were times I talked over a play um, that I shouldn't have. There were times that I stepped on the play-by-play guys, um, you know, that I, that I shouldn't have. One of the things, I, I think one of the best um, pieces of advice I got before I ever did a game, I talked to Mike Breen, and Mike had actually heard me do some college games back in 2012 13 when I was between the Magic and the Pistons. And, um, you know, one of the things he said is, you know, as coaches, you're trained to see everything out on the floor. You can't tell us everything you just saw. You just can't go into everything you just saw. You know, pick up your most important point, make that point, and get out. And I would find myself sitting there a lot of times, Tom, saying, damn, I should have spoken about that. I saw that. But, you know, and I would say that to my brother. And he's like, no, you've got to let certain things go. You can't talk about everything you see out there. Like I remember once, I'll give you a specific example. Um, I'm going, I'm doing a Toronto game, uh, game one or two, I think, or three or four, one of the first games we did of the um, – Toronto-Boston series and Toronto's triangle in two. And just the way the play-by-play was going with uh, Spiro and um, the way the games were going, or maybe it was with Brian Anderson, I don't even remember, but I didn't make the point about them being triangle in two. And I'm sitting there feeling like, I mean, I got a sense of urgency. Like, how am I not going to point out? You're the coach. You got to know that. (laughs) it, It drove me crazy. And it actually went past went to a timeout and they came back and they weren't in triangle and two. And I felt compelled to say, Oh, the Raptors who had just been in triangle and two. And it was like stupid because now none of the viewers could see it. So it was useless, (laughs) but it was bugging me that I had let it go by. And so I have to learn to let go of certain things. How many different zones did 
Nick Nurse throw out in a game. Like it was triangle and two. I think it was a Kemba and maybe Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. But is it hard to distinguish between for you? Cause you've been coaching for years. It's probably easy, but for me as a, as a former high school, like I topped out at, at high school. So when I'm watching the Raptors play defense or even the Miami heat now and trying to decipher whether it's a, a triangle in two or a three, two or a two, three zone or a one, three, one, like, is that easy for you to spot? Because they mix up, they mix up their coverages, like sometimes mid possession. Yeah, no, there, there are times, you know, I misidentified, uh, I know at least once with Toronto saying that they were in their, um, you know, three, two zone or two, three, whatever they were called, two, one, two, whatever they were calling it. When Ananobi played at the free throw line, yep. I mistook, I mistook a triangle in two for their straight zone on at least one possession. Now, if I see it the second time, I'm going to know, but um, you know, it, it's, I mean, I just, with him, I'm sort of trained to look and see how the stars are being guarded. You know, if, if that looks like zone or man to man. And so, um, you know, he, because he played triangle in two, played a lot of box in one um, the last couple of games against Kimball Walker, plays his straight 2-1-2. Two, two, and then he obviously, like everybody does, does different things out of, um, out of his man-to-man. So I remember watching a football game with Chris Collinsworth, and he was talking about how, you know, a, a cornerback was, you know, defending a wide receiver, whatever it was. And I'm like, how does he see that stuff? It turns out he's like not even watching the watching the ball, and I that like blew my mind is that you could be a, an analyst and you're not even focusing on what the action that's happening around the ball because as a fan I'm just always watching. All right, quarterback drops back and he hands it off to the running back and oh there, and he's pointing out things way off the ball that are so important, and yet I didn't realize that as an analyst or as a scout or whatever it is, you might not even be caring what's happening on the ball. You're watching what's happening off the ball and. So as, as an analyst, and you talk about how you can't talk about everything you see, do you find yourself watching different actions as a commentator versus a, um, a coach? No, I, I think, you know what, I probably should, to be quite honest, Tom. But, you know, I, I've been around the game. My dad coached for 40 years, so I've grown up around basketball. And I think I've been sort of trained over a lot of years to view the game through the lens of a coach. And so I think the same's true with my brother or any of the coaches that go into this. Uh, you look at it as a, as a coach. And, and so that's the viewpoint you're going to bring to the fans for better or for worse. You know, that's what you're going to get is how I'm seeing the game. Um, but specifically, are you, are you like focusing on like if a pick and roll happens, are you watching what the bigs are doing or are you watching what the ball handler is doing? Or I, I guess you can watch both. Well, I'm, I'm, you're seeing that. That's actually pretty easy. But I also um, am trying to see what's going on behind that. Yeah. You know, yep. how they're covering, who's picking up the role, man. How are they playing that? You know, where's their help coming from? All of that stuff. I'm trying to pick up. I mean, in anybody's defense, I mean, I'm trying to determine, first of all, quite honestly, at least from watching them, what it seems like their priorities are. In other words, some teams will really get out and deny everything and and try to create turnovers, and they'll stay home more on the weak side and try to take away threes. Um, you know, where there are some other teams whose clear priority 
is to protect the paint and to give help. And then I look at how teams are going to guard the stars, you know, yeah. how, how, how are the Lakers now going to play Jamal Murray, Jokic? How are they going to play Jamal Murray? How are they going to play Jamal Murray, Jokic pick and rolls? And how are they going to play Jokic in the post? I mean, you know, that would be the second thing I would go to. And, and then it's just fundamental things that everybody can pick up on. Like, I think sometimes, even as a coach, you get so carried away with the schemes and everything else. I had an assistant who's in Sacramento now with, um, with Luke Walton, Bob Beyer, and I'd worked with Bob all the way back to college, then five years in Orlando, four years in Detroit. And Bob was always great about bringing you back to the basics because, you know, I'd be talking about scheming on somebody's pick and roll or isolation or whatever, and he'd be saying, you know what we need to do? We need to run back, keep the ball out of the paint, and not foul jump shooters, and then block out and rebound. And he's so right. He's so right. I learned a lot from Bob and all my assistants, but learned a lot from Bob over the years. And he's right. So one of the things I've seen and I comment on a lot, you know, in these games since we've restarted, the number of fouls on three-pointers has been absurd. Now, it's starting to decline now because you're getting to the better teams. And part of being better is you're more disciplined. But, but you still see it. Like, there's nothing worse you can do defensively. Nothing. Nothing. Than foul a three-point shooter. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, if you want to say, what's the worst thing I can do to my team? How can I screw my team over the worst right here? Well, go foul a three-point shooter. So, um, you know, it really does come back to fundamentals. So. I don't want to get away from that either. And those are the easier things for, I think, most fans to understand. So going back to your relationship with your brother, the working relationship with your brother, I watched film of the 97 uh, brawl between PJ Brown and Charlie Ward this morning. And one of the things I loved about the clip was you're an assistant coach for Pat Riley. You're going against your brother, who's the coach of the New York Knicks. There's so much blood rivalry between the two teams. Pat going back to the New York uh, days. And then, of course, the, the players themselves have been playing for both of you guys on both sides. There's a lot of bl- bad blood between the two. So, P.J. Brown on a free throw, Charlie Ward just digs into him, trying to box him out. And whether he was actually taking out his legs or not, whatever, it doesn't matter. P.J. Brown flips him into the front row. And then a brawl ensues kind of in the photographer's row. I was looking for you, Stan, because your brother sprinted out to try to stop things. And so did Pat Riley. And I was looking for you. And I caught a moment in which you were standing next to your brother trying to break things up. And I could not believe my eyes. You're like, you're like trying to mediate things, Stan, but you still have your clipboard in your hand. Well, I don't remember the incident. I know that the first thing as an assistant, especially that you're conditioned to do now in the NBA is to make sure your guys stay on the bench. And I know right. we had the easier situation there because it was at their end of the floor and they actually did come off the bench in it. And it, uh, it cost them. I mean, that's the, that's the only series, the P.J. Brown series, the only one we were able to beat them in, you know. And it was in large part because of that. So it was, uh, 
You didn't even drop your clipboard. Like you were just so like no, I don't attached know. Yeah, to that, that thing. That's interesting. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, head coaches go out and try to intervene and assistants try to uh, make sure that we're not going to lose anybody for the next game. So, so that was my job. Those series were, uh, were difficult to say the least um, for me, probably uh, the least enjoyable basketball experiences I've ever had. So because of um, your brother. Yeah. I just, I don't like that. Well, and the fact that he kept after the first time, he just kept beating our butts all the time. <laughs> um, that probably made it a lot worse, you know? Um, but yeah, it was bad. I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy those times. Um, you know, those are times that um, we never, ever, ever talk about. Um, you know, we may generally talk about the respect we have for certain players on those teams, and we do that a lot um, because there is, when you get past it, a lot of mutual respect, but we never talk about anything to do with any of those series because, I mean, number one, he's got bragging rights, so I – so I respect him for not lauding it over my, over my head because they won all the time. And, you know, then the incident with Alonzo, all of that, that other people think is funny. I don't think it's funny. I, you know, I just don't like any of that stuff. And it's, um, you know, not something that I ever want to reminisce about. It was, uh, it was incredible to watch just the, the style of basketball in those series, just watching some of the clips and how different it is. Um, I, I'm wondering, like, when you were coaching at that point, were you, were you thinking that the NBA would be able to change this much to three-point shooting at that time that the three-point shot – like, how did you guys view the three-point shot in your early days in the NBA compared to how it evolved uh, to now? And I know – rules defensive uh legal defense and uh hand checking changed a lot but uh do you remember at a time when pat said something about the three-point shot or just your philosophy spreading the floor how different it was back then yeah i mean look when i worked for pat i mean it was really nothing we talked about or emphasized i mean we just didn't um you know hardaway would shoot some on his own Bashan leonard uh, obviously shot a lot of, you know, Mashburn would shoot some, but we didn't shoot many. We never talked about, um, yeah, obviously we talked about spacing, but not really in regard to the three. Um, we certainly never talked about the desire for, for corner threes. I mean, it was the mid range jumper was still a, a valued part of the game. Uh, Post play, obviously on both the Knicks and the, and the uh, heat were, were very important. Um, and the defensive styles were totally different because of the way they called the game. I mean, it was hand-to-hand combat. So at that time, no, nothing like this was, I don't think, ever even envisioned. Um, you know, I mean, if, if we took 15 threes, 18 threes in a game, it would have been, you know uh, – a pretty big night in terms of three-point attempts. So, yeah, the game's totally different. It's evolved in a fairly short amount of time to to what it is now. And quite honestly, it's a much better game now. I mean, you know, you go back and watch those games and you're like, holy oh. cow, why would we ever 
like think that was good basketball to watch where we just let people beat the heck out of them. Now our series with them were good to watch simply because they were of the rivalry and the competitiveness, but not because of the beauty of basketball. So um, I asked that because Marcus Smart is, if he's not the best perimeter defender in the NBA, and sure enough, he, he acts a lot and flops a lot. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that too. Uh, but the, the chess match between Brad Stevens and Eric Spolster is fascinating to me. The idea of if you have the best perimeter defender in the NBA and you're going against the Miami Heat, who do you put him on? Put him on Jimmy Butler? Duncan Robinson? Do you take away the shooter? Like, what is that's, your what he did. that's what he did the other day. I mean, you know, they changed at times and they switch a lot on the perimeter, but he had him on Duncan Robinson um, to start. There's actually a lot of times – um, that Smart's not on the best player on the other team. A lot of times in games, I, I think number one um, is I think his um, off-ball defense is, you know, is, is valued. But also um, it makes it a little, a little tougher on teams in terms of pick and rolls and handoffs because then, you know, when you want to involve one of those guys, you're going to have smart switching on to guys. So um, I think all of those things are uh, thought of. Plus, quite honestly, um, Boston's blessed with two guys who are very, very, very good defenders and much taller and longer than smart in Tatum and Brown. And so, um you know, like Tatum did a lot of guarding Kyle Lowry in, in the first round because his size gave Kyle Lowry a lot of problems. Um, you know, and Brown guarded Siakam and Marcus Smart guarded OG Ananobi. So yep. um, I don't think that means that Smart's not as good a defender as those guys. I just think it's all Brad Stevens' strategy and the matchups and what you think works against certain guys. And, and I think size – um, has an impact on a guy like Lowry. Would you have done the same thing as putting uh, Marcus Smart on Duncan Robinson just to kind of neutralize? Because he didn't score on Marcus the entire night. Like, he, he was off the ball. And what I noticed, Stan, is they almost don't even involve Marcus Smart on a lot of actions. And I think part of it is just because he's so good at getting over screens. So any sort of ball screens, it's going to be – um, you know, dead in the water with Marcus Smart a lot of times. And like Jimmy Butler, when he was guarded one-on-one -on -one with Marcus Smart, he often passed out of that. And I think there's almost a subliminal like, hey, whenever you're going one-on-one -on -one with Marcus Smart, it's just a bad idea. Almost in the same way as Bam Adebayo on the other end. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, first of all, you don't know a team well enough from the outside to say, you know, what you would do if you were coaching them because I don't know – Brad's personnel like Brad knows his his personnel I, I mean I just always find those things of interest um, and then the other thing no one is willing to consider is and I am willing to consider it is maybe Brad Stevens thinks Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are better on ball defenders than Marcus Smart is um, those guys are both pretty good defensively and with their size they may create more problems for, you know, for primary scorers. So, you know, I think sometimes we get wrapped up in a guy's reputation and I'm not saying that smart doesn't deserve his reputation as a defender. And he certainly applies a lot of pressure, but when you're talking about 
you know, bigger guys, not the guards. Um, you know, sometimes size plays a big factor. And Tatum and Brown are both outstanding defenders. He may just think those guys are better, better on those guys than Marcus Smart is. Do you think uh, – did you ever use zone as a coach? No, not enough. I mean, I used it very, very, very little, um, maybe as little as anybody in the game. But it also wasn't being – even in the last couple of years, the amount of zones gone way up, as you know, Tom. I mean, it, yeah. it just – you know, Rick Carlisle was using it a little bit, and then Eric started to use it maybe my last year in uh, in uh, Detroit. Um, he started to use it some, but, you know, and we would see it from time to time and, um, you know, never had a lot of trouble against it. We didn't get zoned as much as some other people, um, but it, it's really increased in usage, and this year even as opposed to last year it's really gone up and it's gotten better too. I think like it used to be when people zoned, and I'm saying used to be just a couple years ago. I, I thought the zones, if you really broke them down were terrible. I mean, they were just <laughs> sort of thrown out there, thrown out there as a change of pace and you no know, one knew what they were doing. Yeah. Right. People were stagnant. There were all kinds of things open, but you missed them in the whole thing. Um, now I see some zones played very well. Um, and I still think it's, you know, got to be a change of pace. Um, but I, I thought, you know, there were times where in the previous series where Nick Nurse's stuff was effective. And I thought Eric's zone the other day in the second half in particular um, really changed the pace of the whole game. And, it wasn't that Boston didn't re didn't get shots, um, but it's just a different rhythm to the game, and, yep. and you're doing different shots and a different rhythm. And I thought the zone, as much as anything, uh, turned that game around for Miami. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. This is Mike Tirico introducing you to Sports Uncovered. When I lose the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. Quote, unquote, I'm back. I'm back. The two-word facts from Michael Jordan announcing the most famous comeback in NBA history. That's the most impactful two words ever. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the conversation. You know, I was worried about Kemba Walker's knee coming into this postseason and whether he'd be able to, you know, be Kemba Walker on this stage. And, of course, he hasn't been in the conference finals, but this guy's been a winner his whole career, like, at, at UConn. I'm not doubting his ability to play on the big stage, but I do wonder how they're going to keep him on the floor defensively because Miami was hunting him and he was just flat out bad defensively um, in game one. And I think when Kemba, he, he can't be much better. I mean, we saw in the Toronto series, he was get, getting after it. But, you know, I thought the, the zone against Kemba, I think, I think Kemba was just in his head a little bit. And that the funny thing is he played against Jim Beheim a lot in college. And so you figured it's not the first time he's seen a zone. But as a coach, what are some of the things you try to work on against a zone defense like what Miami's throwing at you? Well, I think, first of all, for, for me, we didn't vary from 
from what we ran. We had, you know, we stayed with our same offense. We did have three or four things um, that we would run consistently against zone. And we talked more about at the end of the play, if we didn't score in our set, what are we now uh, looking for? But set-wise, we still we still ran all of our stuff, um, you know, and, and we talked about very Like it wouldn't be zone-specific. It would just be like a regular play. The play would be, but at the end of the play, it would be a little different. Here's what I think the zone does more than anything in my mind is you can't just go to your star players. You can't have go-to guys against the zone. You know, it just, that's not the way it's going to work. Against the zone, it's going to end up more equal opportunity. You know, you need ball movement. You need to get the ball from the inside out. You need to get the ball to the middle of the court and then to the weak side, all of that. And it becomes more equal opportunity. So I think against teams with stars, it gets tough. I mean, because maybe those other guys aren't as good and they have the ball in their hands as much as your stars and everything else. Like, you know, you see Denver and, you know, they basically have three things they're going to do. Murray's going to isolate. Murray and Jokic are going to run a pick and roll or they're going to throw the ball to Jokic in the post. Now they play through him at the elbow some too. So again, being simplistic, but everything's going to go through those two guys because they don't have another shot creator. I mean, Michael Porter Jr. can get his own shot and he helps them, but there's nobody else going to create for anyone else. And so they need to go to those two guys, um, you know, and, it's hard to go to guys playing against the zone. So, you know, it can be effective in that regard. And I found it interesting with Boston because I think they execute well against the zone for the most part. I think they got good shots in the Toronto series. I would even argue they got better shots against the box and one than they did against the man to man, but they didn't make them as often. I mean, you know, it's something about changing the rhythm of shots and, putting guys in different positions and, and all of that. I mean, and, and what happened the other day, right, is Wanamaker against Miami did a good job stepping up to make some shots. But Miami forces you into now Brad Wanamaker's got to make shots yep. for, you to, for you to be good. It can't just be Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Kimball Walker. So uh, it, it's interesting, the zone. And my brother and I sometimes talk, Tom, about – you know, how would teams be if somebody took the Jim Beheim approach and just said, you know what, we're going to come out and play 48 minutes of zone. Um, you know, there's a guy here locally, a Division II coach, Tom Klusman at Rollins College in Central Florida. And, you know, when I've talked to him in the past, he said, you guys are unbelievable. Like, if you guys go zone and somebody hits a three, you automatically go back man-to-man. But if you go man-to-man and the guy hits a three, you don't change your defense, you know. And, and so it is true that it might – well, it would be interesting, let's say, to see if somebody took the approach and just said, you know what, we're going 48 minutes every yeah. night, we're going zone. 
Nick Nurse could pull it off because he's already he's already done that to a certain extent. He probably uses it more in, in big situations than anybody. Uh, Eric Spolstra, the Heat actually went to zone more than any team in the regular season and dusted it off now against Boston. Didn't do it against uh, Milwaukee or, uh, or Indiana for, for obvious reasons. But then I, I remember what Bomani Jones – have you ever heard Bomani Jones on this subject? No, not on this subject. <laughs> he says zones for cowards. Yeah, well, I know a lot of coaches who sort of uh, grew up that way. You know, my brother played junior college ball for, for a guy in California, Bud Presley, who's renowned among coaches in uh, California. And I remember when I was coaching at Wisconsin, um, we had gone out to play Stanford when Brevin Knight was there. And Bud came by and visited with me before the game, and it was great to see him. He'd been a you know, family friend for a long time. And he was a tough old guy and a great man-to-man defense coach. And so we talked for like 15 minutes and he started to walk away and he turned back to me and he goes, hey kid, you don't play any of that stinking zone, do you? You know, and that's really what mattered to him. Like, you know, we could play well, not play well, but God, you don't play any of that stinking zone. And, and I know a lot of people like that. I grew up around a lot of coaches like that. Um, and I don't buy into any of that. I mean, you do whatever gives your team the best chance to win. I think the hardest thing, and Beheim obviously gets his guys to do it. The hardest thing, I think, in the NBA anyway, if you play a lot of it, is getting your guys to play it hard and still have a true defensive mentality right. that you bring to the game. And and. I think Toronto's guys do that. They go from one defense to the next, and their intensity stays the same. The pride they take in it stays the same. Uh, they move their feet. They contest shots. They're active with their hands, all of those things. But a lot of teams, when they go zone for extended periods of time, take it as a chance to rest. And I think that's the challenge um, for coaches is to maintain a true defensive identity. Like you can't you can't rest in a zone defense in today's NBA. The the players are too good at passing cross court and and forcing the rotation. It's just if you're gonna loaf or take a break defensively, you're gonna get killed on a, on a zone defense. And you also have to understand the the areas of the floor and what what you have to communicate a ton. Like that's one of the things that when I watch Boston or or Miami defenses or the the best defenses in the league you got a lot of chatter defensively. Maybe that's just because we were hearing more of it in the bubble, but um, I want to switch over to the Western Conference. Uh, as a coach, how hard is it to create chemistry or a culture when you're, A, bringing in a talent like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and B, you're almost having to construct it out of thin air. And I know Doc Rivers and the Clippers and Patrick Beverly and the organization had players there before, but they kind of mortgaged their entire uh, player system to try to get these guys onto their team. And then you have to create chemistry and culture from scratch. And I don't know if I buy into the theory that the bubble kind of exacerbates or puts a spotlight on teams that don't have great chemistry or culture, but how difficult was that job for Doc Rivers? I know no one's feeling sorry for the fact that he has two All-NBA players on his team, but it, is it easier said than done to create a culture or a, a set philosophy when you have two really big stars who are playing together for the first time? 
I don't think that's the, I don't think that was the problem, to be honest. I actually think having two guys that everybody knows are the top dogs um, makes it easier to create a chemistry because when we're talking chemistry, a lot of times what we're talking about is role acceptance. And, you know, on teams where, say, there is more even talent across the board, there's people jockeying for position and thinking they should get more shots. I'm as good as that guy, all of that. I think you Boston go, would be a good example there, and Brad does a Brad, really good job so there, Boston, right? Boston does play more or less equal opportunity, and they're lucky in the regard that they're, they have so many younger guys and everybody's getting a lot of minutes. And I think what you have to realize with Boston, those guys are so happy to be beyond last year. I think last year's example in Boston was the better one on how yep. things can break down. They had a lot more top-to-bottom talent last year and yet didn't have nearly the results. And I think, you know, I had one of their players say to me at one point, we've just got – he goes, we've got great guys, but everyone's unhappy. You know, unhappy with their roles, unhappy with their teammates. There were too many people. and. It's too many people without it being clearly distinguished who fits where in the whole thing. And so um, I think Brad Stevens will tell you, he did tell us in some of the early pregame interviews, not always, but sometimes less is more. And for them, it has been, you know, it's been much easier for them because nobody's pressing or forcing because you're going to play big minutes. If you're Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kimball Walker, Gordon Hayward, you're going to get a lot of shots. You you're know going to get you're yours get eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So just play. And that's easier. I, I think the Clippers problem, Tom, is they were never together. Like you, you can't build chemistry, never playing together. Chemistry's not, people mistake it. It's not an off court thing. I mean, every year I laugh, we'll get it again this off season at some point. You know, yeah, you know, Minnesota last year, right? We went to the Bahamas together. So what? What that has absolutely nothing to do with basketball. That's friendship. And friendship is good. And maybe it helps you a little bit, but that's not chemistry. Chemistry is what goes on on the court. And the only way to develop that is to be out there on the court together. That there's no other way to do that in practices and in games on the court to do that. You know, Paul George was hurt early in the year and then Kawhi was, you know, they have to do injury management on him. And then Pat Beverly was hurt a lot. And then even, so those guys hardly played together as a, as a full unit. And then when they got to the bubble, they had guys in and out of the bubble. Um, you, you can't develop chemistry with not playing together. I mean, I go back, let's take a, the other extreme of Doc Rivers, you know, he's in Boston 2008. They have Paul Pierce and they go out and get Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett. And that chemistry came together fine. But if you look back, those guys were healthy all year. You know, they played together. They went through a full training camp together, which is where it all starts. And they developed the chemistry fine um, with those stars and with Rondo. And, you know, it's fine. You need time together. And, and I think one thing all coaches, players, anybody really around the game should take from the Clippers experience this year is, yes, it's about talent, but it's not all about talent. And 
you can't just conjure up chemistry out of nowhere. And it has nothing to do with whether guys like each other or anything else. It's you've got to play together and they didn't. So sorry, there's a train going by me right now. Apologies for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I live on railroad tracks. uh, So it's always a problem when I'm on air a pregame for a Celtics game and like Scalabrini's he's, he's making a big point and it just, so got to work on that. Um, so what happened there in that series that you saw with, uh, with Denver and the Clippers, how that unfolded, was that a matter of Clippers just gave up and just lost the, uh, I don't know if it's giving up is the right word or surrendering or waving the white flag, but how, how did it look from your perspective watching Denver roar back in like three straight games from big deficits and beat the Clippers with their backs against the wall? Well, I I think that it was clear that Denver was by far the more resilient team. You know, I mean, they've shown that in round one. Those guys have been through a lot together. Um, They believe in themselves and they've been through it and they, they had great resilience. Um, when we got to those crucial moments, the Clippers looked absolutely lost. No confidence in each other, no confidence in their system. And again, I'll go back to they haven't had the time together. So that, that comes from playing together, and they hadn't had it, and they were lost. And then I think they knew they were lost, and they knew what the expectations were. And you put those two things together, and – I thought um, that they really broke down. I mean, in terms of mental toughness, they didn't show much at all. They didn't stick with what was going on. And, um, you know, I I get it all back to they just didn't spend the time together. I mean, people are going to attack individual players and Doc and the whole thing, um, you know. But I, I I think that's too simplistic. I don't mind holding people accountable, but... I think it's way too simplistic in this incident. I, I, I just, it's a whole team-wide thing and what they were not able to develop in the bubble. Forget the rest of it, because I don't know that anything's going to carry over from four and a half months before. But, you know, in the bubble, I mean, I, I don't, they didn't have the quality of training camp that some of the other people had. And, you know, and then in some of the games, you know, they were load managing, injury managing people. Um, yeah, I, I just, they, they weren't as ready as, as Denver was. So, and then they found, you know, like, you know, my brother says it all the time on the air and he's absolutely right. You know, it's about your best players being at their best when their best is needed. And Jokic and Murray were the two best players on the floor in that series. Now, Kawhi deserves all the accolades you get. So does Paul George, Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell if we're talking over the course of their career. But in that series, it wasn't close. Jamal Murray and Jokic were easily the two best players on the floor in that series. And game seven was the most obvious example of it. But even if you just look through the whole series, those were the two best players. When you watched Nikola Jokic early in his career, did you notice right off the bat that he was going to be a star player in this league or did it take a while for you to watch and be like, is this guy serious? Or is this like, is his talent so palpable or so different that 
you had to play that guy no matter what? Or was it like, I don't know if this guy could cut it at the, the highest levels of the, of the game? Well, he looked great right away, you know. Um, but they still had Nurkic, you got to remember. And those guys were split in time. And so, you know, you did have the questions. Can he do it full time? Can he do it against frontline guys? Is he going to be good enough defensively? Or are people going to be able to play him off the court? So there were questions. I mean, but you could see the, the high, high, high level of skill um, right away. But, but there's other than maybe a handful of guys who are just great from day one, there's always questions. And I think there were on him. I think there's, you know, there's still ongoing questions. You know, I mean, if you listen to people before the playoffs started and even within these playoff series, like, you know, is he going to be good enough defensively for you to be able to win? You know, can he guard pick and rolls? Because, you know, the Nuggets do not have – Michael Malone cannot downsize like some other teams can. Like, you can't. You can't take Nikola Jokic off the floor, for God's sake. And so, when they did, somehow they, they, they stayed afloat in that game seven. But, like, but that's when very, Clippers should have stomped on their throats and they couldn't. No, but that was for a very short period of time, too. You know, yep. you, can do, you can do anything for two or three minutes, but, you know, you're not going to do it for – you know, quarter. So in other words, if Denver were ever to play Houston in a series, you know, we saw the Lakers, we saw Frank Vogel downsize. Well, Denver does not have that option to downsize. You know, they're one of the few teams who has a center as a focal point of their offense now. And so he's going to play and then you've got to figure it out from there defensively on how you're going to do things. You know, I, I think that Utah is a lot the same way. They're not going to downsize. Philly can't downsize. So, you know, those teams have to go at it differently. And I think there's still a lot of defensive questions on Jokic, but he's so great offensively that, you know, they have sort of overcome whatever defensive liabilities he has. Where's he on the best passing big men of all time? Well, I mean, it's hard to identify people better. I mean, you know, and, and the thing, you know, he can do it from everywhere, from the elbow, from out top, um, directing traffic, and from the post. Um, Even on outlets, he's j- he, he – Oh, his outlets are tremendous. I mean, some of the passes he throws. So – I would say this, like, there's no one in the history of the game that I think you can point to as a big guy and say that he was clearly a better passer than Jokic. Like, there's nobody that you can just say, oh, come on, he was a better passer than, than Jokic. So he's at least in the conversation. I mean, you know, Vladi Divac has got to be in that conversation. Arvidas, yeah. Uh, yeah, Arvidas, though, by the time he got here, I don't know that we saw as much of it. I think Wilt Chamberlain has to be in that conversation. I personally, the other day, uh, texted with my brother and Mark Jackson when they were talking about it on the air, and then I texted them off the air. I, I think Kareem belongs in that discussion. They don't. Um, but, <laughs> but it's tough to, divide, you know, to find people better than Jokic. But I will say this. We're seeing a lot more good passing big men now in the game. I think it's all part of the way players come up, the, you know, positional flexibility, what we allow people to do. 
um, to develop their skills. Like Bam Adebayo to me is a lot different than Jokic, but man, he is a great, great passer too. And what he can do maybe even better than Jokic is pass off the dribble. Like he can go on the drive and pass it with either hand off the dribble. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's just so many teams now are playing with their bigs away from the basket um, that we have seen those kind of passing skills develop. You know what all of them can do now, Tom, is they can short roll on those pick and rolls, catch the ball in the middle of the defense and make the next pass. Like that was always a hard thing. I mean, like I know we would blitz some guards and say, hell, we're going to live with that big guy being able to make the next play. And he's as likely to turn it over as to get the ball to the open man. Now, like I'll tell you who amazed me in the playoffs with how far he's come as a passer. And I give Kenny Atkinson all the credit in the world is Jared Allen. Like he was making passes, both handling the ball out top and on pick and rolls. And I was like, that's Jared Allen. Like he can make these plays now. So Give the credit also to just the way people are developing players now. But, man, there, there's a lot of guys who can pass the ball as bigs. You know what name we don't talk about as a great passing big man? LeBron James. Well, I mean, that's a, I think <laughs> LeBron James you have to put into a little different category. You'd have to put him in the Magic Johnson category, I think. Big guards. I mean, Matt, yeah. those guys – Magic was recognized as a point guard for some reason. We want to call LeBron James a small forward. I mean, he's been a point guard his whole career. This idea, oh, they're going to play LeBron at the point. I'm like, yeah, what's he been playing since 2003? I mean, he's a point guard. I mean, the guy who has the ball in his hands all the time is the point guard. Now, if you're going to define people by who they guard, okay, then he's not a point guard, but either was Magic for that matter. So, um, LeBron James has always been a point guard. And yes, LeBron James, to me, is the best passing perimeter guy. I mean, he, to me, there have been a lot of them, but you I mean you could make a case for John Stockton, maybe, um, but a much smaller guy. But for guys of LeBron's size, yeah, it's not even close. Magic would be the closest, and I'd take LeBron. So you're, you're not just an analyst here. You're also a part of the coaches association. And I'm curious, how are they taking the bubble, the coaches? Well, I've only talked to a few of them when they're in the bubble, you know, whoever's games we had and then friends of mine. And it's been hard. Like, you know, none of them are going to talk about that publicly because they realize, as they should, that, you know, when you make the money that the coaches do and you do this job for a living, talking about things being hard is, you know, a bad look. But why, why, can, why, can, why can we advocate for players to talking? Like if we're, if we're all about player empowerment and social justice and speaking up, not just because you're millionaires, you shouldn't talk on these issues. But like for coaches, isn't that kind of, like when I saw Mike Malone go on that rant about not having his family there, I thought that was refreshing. I was like, go Mike Malone. Like you never really hear coaches do that. Speak out about those, those personal issues in those ways. No, I agree with you. And I thought what, what Mike did was fantastic because it's been really hard on them. I mean, to be away from your families for 
for this long. I mean, look, I, I mean, my brother's gotten to go home twice. He's there, but he's there through the end. And I know it's been tough on him and for the coaches, you know, I mean, some of those guys still have young kids or school. Yes, yeah, Spo has two kids. young ones. Yeah. Yeah, school age kids. And, and, you know, if you have kids the age of Eric Spolstra's, any of us who have had kids know, when you have kids that are, you know, younger than two years old, a matter of 10 weeks, they've already been in the bubble. A lot changes in 10 weeks with kids that young. I mean, you know, it's different if your kid's 17, 10 weeks, you know, you're not going to, you're going to miss them, but you're not going to see great changes. 10 weeks for a, for a toddler, for a baby. I mean, that's, you know, you're missing a lot of stuff. I, I think it weighs on their, uh, their mental health. I think they've all done a great job with it. Um, and thank God for things like, you know, FaceTime and Zoom. But nonetheless, I think what we're asking everyone to do in this bubble is really, really, really hard. And obviously, everyone's done it for the same reason, and that is money. You know, to recoup money for the organizations, for the players, for the, for the coaches, for everybody. And, and so that's fine. They all know why they're doing it, but it doesn't make it easier. It's really, really hard. Did you see uh, Sam Amick's story to, uh, yesterday about uh, Jamal Murray taking five-hour naps before games? Yeah, I did. But what else are you going to do? I mean, not, I, I, yeah. I mean, sometimes we nap because we're tired, right? Sometimes we nap like a player because it's part of your routine. And, but I think we all know this, too. Sometimes you just nap because you're bored to death, like there's nothing else to do. And if you're a player – and you have a game that night. I mean, there's, they have some stuff for players to do. But these guys are playing every other day and have been there 10 weeks. Like, you really going out to play, like, 18 holes of golf or going out to play tennis or hopping on a boat to fish and you got a game that? No, you're not. So you go to your walkthrough and you eat your meals and, yeah, I'll take a nap for five hours because there's nothing else to do. Is a – Five-hour nap still a nap, or is that just sleep? That's sleep, yes. That's We're, sleep, and, but I, I will say I'm envious of that, very envious. Of the five-hour nap? Well, did oh, you, my God, yes. I mean, I, I, can't, I, have, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home. There is no way I am taking a like, – like, like two nights ago when the games – you know, when the Heat game and the Clippers collapse happened, like there was no, hey – uh, wifey, can you, can you take care of the kids this morning? It was it, like, I had to get, I had to wake up with the kids and get things going and I had to get back into work. There was no five hour nap. Like there was no way. So I, I, I wanted to ask you because, um, you've been, you've been in this profession a long time. I don't know what your napping habits were as a coach, but where's the line between a nap and a sleep? Is it two hours, three hours, four hours? What do you, what, where would you draw the line where a, a nap turns into a sleep? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to say anything over two hours is probably sleep to me. Um, you know, I tried when I was coaching to get about 30 to 40 minutes uh, of a nap every day before we, uh, before we went, just to be a little fresher uh, mentally. Some days I didn't get that, but um, couldn't fall asleep, whatever, but tried to get 30 to 40 minutes every day. But yeah, if you're over two hours, that's way beyond the nap. That's into just sleep. Yeah. And, and you, were, you were drinking so much uh, Diet Pepsi at that point that, I mean, there's a lot of caffeine in there, Stan. Yeah, well, that, that does become a problem, I think, for all of us, right? I mean, you know, like you, 
you have those late nights, like you were saying on that game the other night. And, you know, like I had some Diet Coke that night because I wanted to see game seven and I'm not usually up that late, you know, when I'm home. So I, I had some Diet Coke. Well, great. Then you don't sleep as well. So now you're more tired the next day. But now if you have more Diet Coke then you're going to slam it, it's just a, yeah, you're on a, on a bad cycle at that point. So uh, we all know anybody who has to work late hours at times sort of knows what that cycle can be like. Last thing I want to hit before we go here, Stan, is uh, your Twitter account. You've picked up a lot of followers quickly. Uh, I think you joined like a couple months ago. Um, and you've been very outspoken on racial injustice and social issues on your account. Um, did you did you join because you were going to do the playoffs, or did you join because you had you needed more of a platform to speak? Yeah, I, I joined for um, political issues to promote candidates and issues. That's why I uh, joined. That we were sitting one night um, on a Zoom call with a candidate for state attorney in uh, the Orlando area. Um, and with some of her top advisors and we were on the zoom call and they were talking about the campaign and things that not needed to be done. And so many of them were talking about social media's importance and the whole thing. And, um, I said to my wife, um, you know, while the call was going on, like, should I get on Twitter to, you know, to do this kind of stuff? And she said, yeah. And so it started, that was the impetus. And then it just gets on there. Now I probably comment, I probably tweet too much because anything I see that sparks a thought in my head, I, I tweet it out. So it's probably a little bit of overkill. I think I'm going to try to cut back at least. Look, it's just like, it's bit. just like commentating. You can't, you can't talk about everything. You got to focus your thoughts. Everything, it seems like a lot of stuff, at least because of the people I follow and stuff, a lot of things, um, are things that I want to comment on, particularly, you know, social justice, racial justice, our criminal justice system, um, you know, anything like that, and then any type of corruption and things like that. And there's so much of that stuff that's out there now that, you know, yeah, you end up commenting on a lot of it and then try to mix in an NBA thing in there every every once in a while um you know so uh, i have more appreciation for idiots like me on on in media right well yeah not not idiots um look (laughs) i've always thought as you know i mean i think i can i don't i don't do a lot of uh self-congratulatory stuff but I, i think even when i was coaching i think my relationship for the most part with the media was always good um I know I always had a high level of respect for all of you guys. Um, it's an important job in, in our sport. And I, and I have, you know, I'm well aware that, you know, we wouldn't have the league we have. We wouldn't have the number of fans we have. We wouldn't have the money we have without the, without the media. And sometimes that means people are going to be critical of you as a coach um, because that's their job and that's the way – that I've always approached it. So I have, I have never looked at the media as idiots. I've never had an adversarial relationship. Now it doesn't mean that occasionally you're not going to have a disagreement with somebody in the media. I mean, I have disagreements with other coaches and 
other people at times, but oh, we've had disagreements our, on load management and stuff over the years. Yeah, where yeah, I think yeah. I brought it up to you one time at a shoot around. I said, you know, these players today, they, they play, you know, off season, uh, you know, in these, in these pickup games. And, you know, back in the day, they didn't really play as much in the off season and you just went off and you were like, are you f- kidding me? Like, Oh, you're telling me Oscar Robertson wasn't playing like he's playing in, in basically barefoot at the YMCA in, in the off seasons. Like, you're telling, go tell Oscar that. And I was like, Oh yeah, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to win this one with Stan. No, well, and then it's, you know, that's what I'm saying. I've, I've had arguments like that. And I've had times where I've been upset with people in the media. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but I, I think if we could, if we pooled all the people who covered the NBA, I, I would think that, Overall, people would say that I treated media people with respect over time and given them time. And I, I, look, I appreciate their opinions. I read, I listen to people, whether I'm coaching or or um, or doing what I'm doing now. I mean, I, you guys have a really, really important role in the league. And I don't care if you're in TV, radio, um, you know, print media, all of the above. I mean, it's an important job. So I would never refer to the media as idiots, um, you know, and. Oh, I was just messing with you. No, no, but it's important to me because it is important to me because I think that a lot of times that, you know, it's, it's almost like we view coaches and media members as like adversaries because media is going to be critical at times. And, and that's, at least in my perspective, that nothing was further from the truth. I mean, you know, I actually, you know, one of the guys I've gotten closest to in the media was Dan Levitard. Spent, you know, spent a couple of years doing his show and stuff for him. And we basically got to know each other over me being upset about stuff he wrote. You know, yeah, it was um, a, a bonding experience. Is just to well, actually. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I just, you know, the fact that somebody's critical of you, I, it doesn't, to me, doesn't mean there's an adversarial relationship. You just, you know, you just disagree. And I, quite honestly, my experience is I've always been treated, I think, fairly by the media. I've been criticized a lot, but I. Well, on a couple of occasions, I thought, a couple, you know, people got personal um, and that bothered me. And I said something, but you got every right to criticize my coaching. That's your job. So I've never had a I've never had a problem with that. I might disagree with what you wrote, but so what? You know, that's not a reason to not like somebody. Um, Stan, this was great. Thanks for doing it. Um... I don't know what, what is next for you. You're so good at everything you do. And I know you're going to blush and say, ah, stop it. Um, but like, if you, if you wanted to go into, you know, politics, you could probably do that too, because you're the thoughts you have on Twitter, um, and your messaging, um, it seems like you're, you're ready for this. It's like, this is, this is, this is something that's bigger than just, you know, talking about basketball and stuff that like you could go into politics too. Uh, no desire. Um, at some point in my life, I thought I might have some, but no desire. I do have a great desire, um, to be able to use my voice and my resources to be involved politically. Um, and really my wife and I, where our focus is, is 
to, you know, try to identify candidates that we really believe in, uh, who believe similarly to we do and are a lot smarter than I am, and then try to support them. Because I'm like a lot of people, quite honestly, I think that I know enough to identify what I see as problems, but I'm not smart enough to know the solutions, <laughs> you know, and so I want to find people that are and that not only know the problems, but, but have solutions. And so I think my role in, in politics is, you know, to, to have a voice and voice my opinions like everybody has the right to do, and, but more so even to promote candidates that can make real changes, get people to vote. I mean, you know, um, those kind of things that can make practical changes, but you're not going to see my name on a ballot. Um, I've had opportunities, um, you know, uh, to be on a ballot, but uh, I, I'm just, uh, I'd, I'd be shocked if I ever got to the point that I wanted to run for anything. Where was the closest? When was the closest that you were going to be on a ballot? No, I was never, I was never close. I mean, it was easy for me to say no. Um, the couple times I've been asked, 2012, right after I'd gotten fired with the magic, um, here in Central Florida, they, uh, they asked me to get involved in a campaign to raise the uh, property tax um, for the public schools. Um, and I sort of got, you know, misled a little bit in. And so, yeah, they asked me to get involved. And I went to my first meeting and all of a sudden I was the face of the campaign. Um, <laughs> but for, I don't know, for four or five months, that's what I did. And it was great because I needed something to do after being fired, needed something to put my mind on. But I was out four or five days a week speaking to groups and campaigning and, and doing all of that. No social media for me, at least at that time. I was just out talking to people. And um, we actually won um, a property tax increase in a heavily Republican uh, county. So that was good. Um, but I went enough to public meetings, to town council meetings and things like that, and saw how those people got treated by their constituents to never, ever, ever, ever want to be the person in that position, you know, um, of, of serving there. It's just, it's thankless. And I'm, I have great respect for the people who do it, but I don't want to be one of them. And coaching isn't very thankful, like in terms of like when, when you win a championship, like you look at Eric Spolstra, um, you know, Jeff, Jeff, your brother was as loud as anybody early on in Eric's career as saying, you know, this is an all time Hall of Fame coach right here before he even won the titles. And uh, so, you know, it's for Eric, it's been it's been kind of he doesn't care. He's not all about he's not he doesn't care about Springfield. He cares about winning the next game. But um, but it's it's funny how how similar in some ways coaching is and 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 being a politician is just it's not a very thank it's not a it's not something that people are gonna um, cheer you when things are really good it's it seems like you only get headlines when you screw up or things aren't going as well yeah but there's one big difference Tom millions of dollars <laughs> that's the, that's the difference you know it. it it may be thankless to be an NBA coach until payday. And payday <laughs> is very, very good. 
I mean, these local officials who are just trying to help their community. I mean, uh, I'm not saying there's no corruption, but like how much, how much kickback money and stuff are you getting as a town council member in Lake Mary, Florida? Like these people are just trying to help their community and they got people going to meetings and, you know, questioning their integrity and everything else. I mean, it, it's beyond absurd, quite honestly. And I'm glad there are people out there that care so much about their community that they're willing to put up with that stuff. I'm just not one of them. Well, Stan, thank you so much. And, and uh, you're, you did a great job with, with the, the broadcast. And I don't have any notes for you. So you're doing great. I appreciate it, Tom. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Habershow Podcast. Big shout out to Stan Van Gundy. Go follow him on Twitter at RealStanVG on that platform. He's great there. Um, if you haven't yet, check out my pod last week with George Sedano from ESPN. Uh, we used to work together in Miami, and so there's probably no one who knows Miami sports and Miami sports media and what the LA scene like is like these days with uh, with LeBron and the Lakers. We're going to talk about LeBron's legacy over there on that pod. Um, also check out recently did a pod with Amin El Hassan and John Hollinger. Last thing is that this pod is now on Amazon Music. So if that's where you want to listen to the podcast or you know someone who wants to listen to the podcast on that platform, now it's up. The Haber Show on Amazon Prime. All right. All right. Until next time, probably lots more to talk about in the next week in NBA action. Stay tuned.